strengthen Maine's economy by focusing on education, leadership, and quality of place. On the web at maincf.org. The time is 10.02, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, we're all familiar with a typical business model that creates and sells products and services that we purchase to meet some need or desire. But what if the model were rethought to create a virtuous cycle connecting business, people, and the planet? This morning, we'll be talking with our guest, Jay Friedlander of College of Atlantic, and others to talk about um, this concept of an abundance cycle. And we're happy to welcome Jay Friedlander back. Jay, um, uh, you're the Sharp McNally Chair of Green and Socially Responsible Business. That's a mouthful. It (laughs) is. Tell us a little bit about um, yourself and how you came to that position. So uh, I've been at the College of the Atlantic for about uh, six or seven years now, and I I came from a, a long, winding road of doing everything from uh, the Peace Corps to running a natural and organic foods company to doing consulting with Fortune 100 companies. And and what the college has allowed me to do is really a, a both apply and, and put together new ideas about how can you use business as a lever of change mm-hmm. and to create the world that you want to see. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you've done is to create um, what you call a hatchery or the hatchery, um, kind of an incubator for some of those business ideas. Yeah, we have students who are starting business as part of their education. You know, you can come to a College of the Atlantic and create for credit. And we've had students working in everything from uh, biofuels to advocacy to the creative economy and really using both their principles and the principles around creating a more abundant world to um, as part of, to do this as part of their education and start up these enterprises. Mm. Well, you brought with us one of the students from College Atlantic who's probably got some association with the hatchery, Lisa Bjorke. Lisa, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to College Atlantic. You are now a graduate student, I understand. Yes. Um, I came here in 2009 um, as an undergrad from uh, Sweden on a scholarship, and I did my four, four years working with uh, Jay and many other of the great faculty and staff and uh, students and the commute Neti mainly focusing on organic resources and compost, but being all over mm. um, with my interest of how to how to improve uh, myself and my my surrounding. Mm. Well, we're going to come back to you in a few minutes to talk about your Watson Fellowship and then the work that you're doing now. 
Um, Jay, uh, I can recall um, my first assignment as a as a, um, a fledgling professor was to teach a basic course in economics, and the the book that I used was something called Scarcity Challenged, and I think it comes out of a, a the concept that um, our economic systems are supposed to um, help us with scarce resources and distribute those resources in some way, and yet you've come up with the idea of abundance, <laughs> kind of the opposite notion. Uh, tell us a little about that that kind of that path. Sure. Well, there, you know, there's a reason they call economics the dismal science. <laughs> and, you know, my background is one of entrepreneurship, where it, you look, take, really, you do take the opposite view. And you're looking for opportunities in the world and things that unrecognized resources, unrecognized value in figuring out how to use them. Mm. And, of course, business and economics take very different views of the world. Economics looks at broad trends and what's happening. And in business, it's how do you apply this? How do you make it happen? And I think for, for me, the concept of abundance is really about how do you improve the community, improve the environment, and improve the bottom line and make the business more robust um, in doing all those things together. And when you do that and you have that new perspective, you see all kinds of new opportunities that uh, other people have missed. And in doing so, that, that helps uh, create a more uh, abundant world. Mm. So um, some people's concept of business is, is narrower um, in that um, the business is in – in, they're producing something, but they're also producing a profit for the owners or the stockholders, whatever. You've expanded that to say that there there might be some real benefit to the community and to the, the planet. Yeah, and, and, well, and what they're finding out is that the companies that are on the cutting edge and understand where things are going are using these new models and are actually more profitable. They're saving costs. They're reducing their risk profile, and they have all of these other benefits. And because it's uh, a more complex way to operate where you – let's say, um, help solve a problem in the community or help improve the environment, um, you, you create a more robust competitive advantage. And so you have companies out there, big, large publicly traded companies like Whole Foods, who is one of the most profitable um, companies in their sector. And you have others from you know GE and Unilever all, all the way down to startup companies, people like Airbnb, who are using these kinds of new models to to create abundance for not only for their shareholders, but also for the communities they operate in. Mm. So is it in their genes that they think differently about this, or have they learned this technique, or have they stumbled on it, do you suppose? I mean, I think it, it's a whole bunch of different things. When this stuff originally started really coming to the fore in the, I'd say in the 80s and 90s, people were starting to conceptualize things a little bit differently and saying things like, well, what if you started looking at waste as a resource? Or what if you had an economy that instead of where you bought products, you actually shared resources when you need them? So like the whole sharing economy with companies like Airbnb and Zipcar. Um, and there have been phenomenal gains. When you hear about uh, GE talk about their eco-imagination program and helping people do more with less resources, um, you know they have saved their customers tons of money and they've also made tons of money. If you go back to the early days of the Industrial Revolution, when you had one person doing the work of a hundred. Mm. You know, now we're starting to do that with energy and other areas. And you can look at something as simple as a light bulb when you're going from incandescent to a CFL light bulb to an LED, all of which are using 
uh, energy much, much more efficiently. So you're seeing it as a, a, somewhat of a natural progression of the business model to expand um, who they think about or you know, what they think about as they go into business. Yeah, and part of this is also facing up to the realities of the world in that mm. there are fewer resources and this going back to that notion of scarcity. Um, and so you have to find new ways to operate. But a lot of this also is coming out of an ethos. You know, your perspective and how you see the world guides a lot, and the models you're using guide the decisions that you make. So if you're trying to say, well, wait a minute, I, I want to I do these things, but I also care about the environment, or I care about solving social issues, and our understanding of those has gotten much deeper over time and will continue to progress, that you're going to come up with new models. Mm. Um, a, another great example of this is uh, there's a woman, uh, Zhang Yin, who came over to the U.S. and was looking for business opportunities, and she noticed that we were throwing out a ton of cardboard. Hmm. And she got that cardboard and put it in containers and shipped it back to China. And they made it into boxes, and then they shipped it back to us And as you know, around, our product, around the products they were selling. She's now the richest woman in China. And so she took something that was garbage to us you know, and seen as just waste and really uh, used that to create a whole new opportunity. Hmm. And that's happening all across the economy. Uh, today with companies like that or, or concepts like Kickstarter, where you have people crowdfunding different ventures. And today, when Kickstarter started up, you know, it, um, about eight or nine years ago, it was seen as this odd, quirky little concept. And today they've provided over a billion dollars in mm. funding mm. for startup enterprises. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, in, in some ways, they're they're um, finding um, new paths um, to um, substitute for the old paths of getting, in that case, money to people. But in in other cases, it's it's taking waste and, and making a product out of it. Yeah, absolutely. This is about redefining the direction of the economy. And if you if you look at this, you're redefining these pathways and you're maximizing the gains you can have for both for business, the environment, and society. If you look at the evolution of the economy, it goes through these phases. So we started out as an agricultural economy and then went to industrial and then the information age. And there's many people who think we're moving into this age of abundance or sustainability where you really have to operate within a a different set of parameters. And you have to be thinking about these issues and that the companies that don't think about these issues, the same thing's going to happen to them that all the, the other companies that miss those the, the change of context in the economy. They're going to go away and they'll be replaced by a whole new set of folks who have figured out new ways of finding value that people didn't know that, mm. that, they, didn't know that they existed before. So is that happening um, as we think about energy as well? Um, I think of, of the typical energy companies um, uh, using fossil fuels. They must be thinking, well, there's an end to this. <laughs> yeah, or and there's huge risks. Mm-hmm. You know, on the publicly traded markets, the and the companies are valued based on a lot of intangible factors, and 70 to 80% of their value is made up of, of things that are intangible. You can't quantify them on a, on a balance sheet like assets own. So, and you can see that as people have more risk involved in their portfolio from carbon or other things, their valuations are, are going down. And you have other companies, you know, you look at um, companies like Tesla, right, who is doing electric cars, and their valuations are so much higher because people see that that's that's where the future is going. So they're looking at th- these values as potential versus the, the risk that's inherent in, in taking the last <laughs> little bit of, of oil out of the, the, the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Jay, as you, as you begin to work with students, um, what kinds of things, what are the, the things that they bring to, to your quest? What are, what are the, you've mentioned some ideas, but um, where do they start? Do they start with ideas? Well, you know, 
you start from a whole number of different areas, especially at College of the Atlantic where it's interdisciplinary. So students are coming at things from many different areas. And, and actually, one project that Lisa was involved in um, which started in a class that's about solving social problems. And they were interested in solving the problem of food waste on MDI. And so they had uh, on their team uh, Lisa, who was extremely interested in composting. They had another person who was interested in fermentation, specifically brewing beer. Mm -hmm. um, they had another person who was a community organizer. And there was another person on that team who was looking at wood as a resource. And they were trying to solve this problem of what do you do with all this food waste that we're sending off the island to be burned? Uh, and lettuce doesn't make a great fuel. You know, it's, it's mostly water. Um, and so how can we use this stuff that we're paying to have it taken away as a resource? And they came up with this idea of gourmet butanol, where you're turning the food waste into biofuel. And the person who was leading that team, Nick Harris, is now getting his PhD, getting his PhD at Berkeley um, to continue working on that process. Lisa, um, what do you remember about that, that, the excitement of that project? What, what, do, what do you recall? That was two or three, four years ago? Yeah, um, that was, yeah, that was a long, it feels like a long, long, long time now. But um, it was to, to bring together um, the, 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 the issues on the surface that, that we thought, like, like things that did not make sense. Like we were throwing away food, either we need to reduce it, but, it, but if it's there, how can we use it? And, and take that, what first looked like an issue, and then turn it around and see it as an opportunity. And I think going through the 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 like process of a vision to actually like how would this this work? If you have mm -hmm. this idea, what are the steps from where we are are now? And and it took much longer than what we thought, of course. And and Nick is now in in uh, in grad school, still working on on it. So it, for me, as a as a second year student, it was a the most important experience of daring to to believe in a vision and then trying to go for it and going through that process with the help of faculty and and a community supporting it, it was transformative and taught me um, how hard it is to get things done, but also how much fun, and that's what I want to spend my life doing, <laughs> oh, that's trying, great. trying to solve issues. Yeah, That's great. Well, I just want to remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. Um, in our studios this morning are Lisa Bjorke, who's a graduate student. You've just heard from her, and Jay Friedlander, who's the Sharp McNally Chair of Green Business and Green and Socially Responsible Business at College of the Atlantic. Um, we'll open up our phone lines for you to participate um, in just a while, but I want to remind you that this is the Funathon. Um, edition of Talk of the Towns, and we urge you to call in with your pledge. Um, if you do, call 1-800-643-6273. We'll enter you into a drawing for This Changes Everything, Capitalism and versus Climate by Naomi Klein, a really wonderful book, and that drawing will happen on on uh, Friday afternoon at 5. So if you do call with your pledge, your name will be entered for the drawing of that uh, book. 1-800-643-6273. As we return to our conversation here, we're talking um, about uh, abundance and abundance as a new lens for developing sustainable uh, business. Uh, Jay, as I recall, um, at College of Atlantic, there were some skeptics um, um, within the college who's, who wondered, well, 
business, they're the enemy. <laughs> you know, um, they've, they've, uh, business has, has sacrificed the planet, so to speak. And why would we want to teach business skills at, at College Atlantic? But you kind of came in and began to, to work with that concept. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. And I, I think that was a really, when the college was founded, you know, that was a very common view. I mean, business, and, and I still think today, you know, business is a cause of huge problems around the world and, and you know, maybe the agent of destruction. Mm. Um, but if you stop for a moment and say, well, wait, is there another side to that? You, you really, and, and you kind of unpack it, you, what you see is that business is one of the most ubiquitous activities on the planet, if not the most ubiquitous activity. And by changing the way you do business, you can have enormous knock-on effects. Essentially, mm. it's the mm. biggest lever out there. Right. So how can you strive to have social and environmental change without including including business? It just mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. So, and, and so if you change the way that business is done, you can have the, these remarkable positive effects. And for, for me, I really saw this in the Peace Corps where I was uh, in, in Mauritania in West Africa where they had abolished slavery in the 1980s. Now, you know, enslaving people for your enrichment is about the, the worst of, of business. But then you would also see that these, these same groups that have been enslaved, they had gotten together and formed women's cooperatives, and they could suddenly afford nutrition uh, uh, to feed their kids. They could afford education, their social standing increase, and had all these positive benefits. And so I knew when I, I got out of the Peace Corps, that was what I, I wanted to do was do mm. business that way. Mm. And I think they've seen at the college um, and other places that if you change what is happening underneath the system with something like business, you'll, you can have tremendous positive consequences. Mm. And students have kind of picked up on that since you kind of became this, this uh, um, uh, uh, chair of green and socially responsible business. Yeah, I would say the students were pushing for it. Ah, okay. And so I was, when I arrived, I think I was meeting pent-up demand because, the like many things, uh, the students are far ahead of everybody else on, on where we need to be going. Sure. Um, and so they were really pushing for to have someone to help them do these things. And we've had students do tremendous work. Um, you know, I talked about Gourmet Butte and all, but there are numerous other stories I could go into as well. Mm. Well, in a moment, we're going to be talking with Steve Schaefer from uh, Black Dinah Chocolatiers. Um, we'll be reaching him by phone. Um, but, Jay, earlier in your career, you worked with something I believe called Oh Naturals. Yes. Um, and tell us about that concept and, and what you kind of bring from that experience into your present work. Sure. That was a natural and organic uh, food startup. And actually, when I was working at O Naturals and looking around at what has happened, there was this huge growth in, that continues today in the natural and organic food sector. And I was trying to figure out, and, and at the time, I was also teaching courses on, on sustainable business. And so I was trying to figure out how do you take these kinds of principles and how are companies making them work and what is a model that people can use as an alternative that's still grounded in business strategy but brings in these other concepts mm. Um, and so when I was with O Naturals, those ideas were really formed in the early stages of the abundance cycle came about. And O Naturals was, was really, as, as I experienced it, because um, I would go to the one in, is it uh, um, uh, Southern Maine in, in, uh, in Falmouth? In Falmouth, Falmouth. Yeah. Um, it was a place where you could go, um, you knew you were going to get a consistently um, um, quality meal, yeah. but it was going to be served Almost McDonald's style. It was fast food, but it was really quality. Was that? Is yeah, that, that was that was the, the idea. Concept? So yep. it was uh, quick service, but all the ingredients were natural, local, wild, or organic, and mm -hmm. so there was really high quality food um, that was served quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and now after after being in business about ten years, O Naturals um, is no more. 
And and I think one thing here that I, that I want to make perfectly clear is that uh, you still have, even with a company that's practicing abundance, you still have all the normal risks that you have with any company. Mm. Um, and you still have to operate well and 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 be able to perform the tasks that you're performing. Um, so you know this is not a panacea from a business perspective. You still have all those risks, but when it's done. Uh, and done well, you can it can lead to enormous opportunities. Mm. And so, one of the courses that you taught um, was one that uh, was called Sustainable Strategies. I understand, and yes. and Steve and Kate Schaefer were members of that class. Is that right? Yeah, they were in that class. We consult for companies. Okay. So students take the theory of abundance and sustainability, and they apply that to a company. And so they were one of the companies we were consulting for as well, part of that I'm, class. I'm happy to welcome Steve Schaefer um, to uh, Talk of the Towns. Welcome to our program, Steve. Um, you're, you're calling from the road as you head to southern Maine, I understand. Steve, are you there? No, we, we've lost Steve, so we'll, we'll try to get him back. Um, tell us a little bit more about that process of students kind of con- contracting or consulting with, with businesses. Sure, and and it goes back to your earlier question of how do we engage with students, and and what we do is we want to take uh, theory and action and combine them together. So you you know having the passion without the skills is somewhat of an empty set, mm. um, and so a part of this process is we want them to consult with companies and and see. Okay, so they have lots of exciting ideas, but what does it take to implement this? What do you do when you know with an entrepreneur who's trying to make payroll? and still trying to apply these concepts. And where are the, the points of tension? And generally what that does is just increases the learning for mm, everyone. Mm. So uh, now I think we've got Steve Schaefer back. Welcome to Talk of the Town, Steve. Thank you. Well, glad to be here. Um, tell us a little bit about, um, I think many of our listeners will be familiar with Black Dinah Chocolatiers, but give us the thumbnail sketch if you would. Yeah, uh, we started in uh, 2007 at the time. Um, we had moved out to uh, Idaho and um, I was doing construction, and uh, Kate, my wife, was working at the uh, keeper's house as, at the inn, and housing's real hard to find out there, and so um, we had finally found a place that was permanent, and as soon as we moved into the uh, place, um, she found out that the, her employers were retiring, and we had just located, and we didn't want to move, so uh, we had to think about what uh, Kate was going to do, so we spent a winter... Um, just brainstorming, and Kate had been interested in chocolate for a number of years and started um, experimenting with um, different recipes, and uh, we sat down and worked out a business plan and uh, opened a little cafe on the side of our house to try and get the product out there, and um, it grew year by year, and, uh, you know, so this is, and we're now in the process of setting up a facility uh, down in Westbrook to meet demand, because it's it's very difficult to do uh, production on a remote island. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. You've, you've got uh, transportation problems to, among them. Um, yeah, and, we've got weather that we're always fighting. And uh, and this has got to be one of the um, three or four busiest times of year for you, Valentine's Day coming up tomorrow? Yes. It, it, well, you know, our shipping is done on that on that level. But we have a store in Blue Hill um, that is very busy, and I'm down in Westbrook doing a little pop-up at our new location um, for, uh, you know, just trying to get our product to more people. Um which has always been a cha- you know that's the biggest challenge one of the biggest challenges there's a couple of challenges but that's one of them and and so um, you um, worked with uh, Jay Friedlander who's here in the studio um, in the sustainable strategies course um, what was that like what what did you learn in that process you know I think that it's um, one of the 
like listening to, I was listening to the beginning of this conversation, and it's, it's interesting because out of um, the scarcity um, comes abundance. And moving out to the island and being part of that community out there, I, you really get to see how the impact that a business has on a, on a, on a community, which you don't necessarily see um, in smaller communities. Mm. Um, and so when I, when I, and I still see this on a day-to-day basis, I see so many opportunities out there that could benefit the community that would be profitable, that would generate jobs by um, just creating a business around, around stuff. But, the, but what, what is the hard part in that is that the community has to be ready for it. Mm. And so there's all these different factors that are involved, you know, as that if you're going to offer something, the people have to be ready for it, or how do you get them to, um, be, to accept it? Um, so it was, it was, it, it was really uh, a lot about understanding um, how the community and uh, scarcity can turn into abundance and the challenge with tur- turning it into that, switching people's perception of it and saying, oh, we do have a lot here. It's not you know, looking at something as blowdown. For us, that's a, that's a huge problem, a lot of trees. Well, what do you do with that? How do you turn it into something that is instead of a, is a, is a pain to deal with as to how does it, you know, could you turn it into something that makes the... Um, it makes it useful for the island. So it seems like what you're saying is that any entrepreneur um, could kind of um, be very observant about what's going on in their community, look at the things that are in some ways causing problems, and then figure out a way to um, turn that into a profit-making business. Exactly. You know, and that was one of the things when we were uh, first looked out there, part of the reason the cafe came, came about was we heard people lamenting the fact that what had, the store had traditionally had a little space for people to come and meet, and the store had changed to the point where they didn't have that anymore. And they were like, "Well, you can't. There's no place for anybody on the island to eat." I was like, "All right, well, let's do a little cafe where people can come and sit down and eat." And it was really interesting to see all of a sudden, you know, because it, there was never this opportunity before. In, in a sense, we had people that normally, I mean, it's an island during the summertime with 350 people that really never had the chance to communicate with each other on a different level. It was always either work-related, because if the summer community comes out and they need stuff done, they were communicating with the year-rounders for, you know, I need this job done or this job done. And all of a sudden, they come into the cafe, and they see them in a different... They don't. Their, their relationship is all of a sudden changed. They're both customers, which is an equal uh, relationship, and they'd have conversations that they never had before, and relationships would start striking up. Mm. So it was really interesting to see, you know... And I don't think you would have seen that, the, the, those little nuances you lose in a bigger city and i, and I think you know in, in islands are perfect places to start to, ha- to have people start looking at um uh issues and say oh i could turn this into a business and then taking it on to the mainland because you've worked out a lot of the minor details and understanding of oh this this is what is needed and you can really drive it home in a, in a larger sense so you were you were um, as as um, Black Dinah Chocolatiers um, got to a point where you were developing a customer base. Um, you decided to move production facilities um, to an, an area that uh, probably has some of that larger context um, down there in Westbrook. What, what led to that? Um, was it um, that you were getting big enough so that you really needed to do that? And there's a lot of um, uh, things that led to it. One is, and it, you know, for us to get product to the um, for you to UPS it, we'd have to take it down to the mail boat, um, and then it would be taken over to on the mail boat. And so everything takes three, three or more, four more times as much labor 
to get something accomplished. Um, we were also running into um, labor resources. Human resources were an issue. There was not enough um, people on the island to do what we need to do. You need, to, you need a, a certain temperament and talent to be able to do certain positions, which was what Kate does, and there's nobody to really, you know, that Kate could train um, to do that. And so, and we also wanted a larger base to work from and make things easier for us. Um, we really want to get Kate back into um, producing new product, which is really what her strength is, um, as opposed to day-to-day operations. Mm. You know, and and you, but you've done um, very well in terms of attracting um, uh, kind of national, international attention. Um, won through an award that uh, um, your product uh, won very recently, and I believe that uh, Martha Stewart has been um, quite interested in your product. So you've gotten the recognition, and now you need the production facilities to to meet that demand. Correct. Correct. You know, we've been very fortunate in getting a lot of press, but also, you know, it's it, it's taking what's presented to us. What the the product that won um, the national recognition was um, uh, the Cassis de Resistance, which won a uh, Good Food Award. And the requirement is that it has to be produced in a certain way, and that the product has to be local. You know, we've already we've always been um, concerned with it, what, what we can get locally. And right down the road, somebody uh, somebody was um, growing uh, black currants, and we were able to purchase them from them, and turn and Kate was able to turn that into a truffle. Hmm. So that's even more, you know. It's a point of pride for us to be able to grab something from the island and create something that you know that um, that good. Hmm. And it's a, it's, a, it's a credit to Kate's talents also. You know, well, we're sorry that you both couldn't be with us um, to to share that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too, me too. But uh, you know. And anything that you particularly remember from um, the course um, that you connected with uh, Jay Friedlander in terms of the sustainable strategies? What what did you learn out of that process? Well, you know, for me, it was there's a lot of things, but one of the things that was most impressive was to see the students responding with, you know, as Jay said earlier, they're just so eager to take these ideas and put them out there in the world, Um, and I. For me, it's where our location is so remote. I'm not in contact with that as much. And so all of a sudden, seeing people who are eager to say, mm-hmm. "Look, these are new. These are new things we want to we want to check out. We want to figure out." And it's that entrepreneurship that is really great to see people being eager about something. And it's not on all levels. It seems like they were they they were grasping a, a wider range of um, possibilities um, than than you know than I had you know previously. Jay, any anything to add to that in terms of what you saw happening when uh, uh, Steve and Kate were connected to the the hatchery? Yeah, well, in, in the in the in the course, I think there there's a two part process, and so the first part was in going on skill building and and really looking at what was happening strategically within the business and where are there areas of strength with Black Dinah, and then the second part, what the students were doing was taking various tactics and various concepts from the from the from the abundance cycle um, and tactics that other folks were using and looking at the business and trying to help them both evaluate. I think one of the things, if I remember correctly, Steve, is at the time you, you all were still in the process of evaluating the move to Portland. Um, and so they analyzed the business and said, here are some here are some different ways that you could you could do things to have to that will both impact you positively uh, from a business, but as well as improve your social and environmental impacts. Yep. Yep, and one of the things they, you know, they talked about different um, 
uh, assortments. One of the ones was, you know, Kevin once just island-based and so forth, which was really good for me to see that it is important, you know, what was important to people, uh, you know, a younger generation to see how they evaluate a product. Hmm. Uh, from my perspective, they oh, okay, this is important to them. It's not just something that I'm thinking or hoping is true. They're, they're reflecting that as, yeah, it does make a difference to us, and we would spend the money to um, purchase it. Great. Well, Steve, thanks so much for taking time to be with us here on Talk of the Towns, and, and uh, best of luck to you and Kate with Black Dinah Chocolatiers. Thank you very much. Okay, that was um, Steve Schaefer of Black Dinah Chocolatiers. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about abundance as a new lens for developing sustainable business. In the studio with us are Jay Friedlander, the Sharp McNally Chair of Green and Socially Responsible Business at College of Atlantic, and Lisa Bjorke, who is a graduate student at College of Atlantic. We're going to come to her in just a moment, but I want to remind you that this is Funathon, and we're um, always glad to get your pledges of support. Um, by phone or by um, on, online. If you're doing that by phone, 1-800-643-6273, and uh, your name will be entered into a drawing for This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus Climate by Naomi Klein. That drawing will be happening on on Friday at 5 o'clock, so um, get your name into the, the uh, watering can for that uh, giveaway. Um, also, if you've got um, uh, comments or questions um, you're, or would like to share your own experience, please give us a call at one 866 625-9378. That's 866-625-9378. Well, Lisa, um, I w- was recently reading my Utney magazine, and uh, um, Eric Utney, who's the uh, originator or founder of Utney, um, quoted John Gardner, who um, some folks may remember as the founder of Common Cause. And, and Gardner said, this is the time of breathtaking opportunities disguised as unsolvable problems. And it strikes me as, as um, our whole concept of waste is one of those opportunities to describe as a problem. Tell us a little bit about your interest in waste and your Watson Fellowship that provided a chance after college uh, to travel around the world. I think you were looking at people's perceptions of, of waste and composting in particular. But tell us how, how you got interested in, in the topic of waste. Yeah, um, as a as an honest, I saw waste as a human conception, and I still, still, still do. And it hit hit me that like in nature, if you want to separate us um 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 from nature in in a way for us a second, in nature there is no concept of a waste. Right. Like beauty is in the viewer's eyes, and I think waste is in the viewer's eyes as well. Um, that that we decide due to social val- values or economical structures and our our beliefs what is waste mm. and i think that that is hurting us and is hurting the the environment by 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 deciding that 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 some some resource is waste just just because i don't value it right now so um so when you say there's no waste in nature yeah. um, if something breaks down it becomes part of something else exactly uh-huh. it, it it builds up and breaks down so on many different time 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 scales. But we're all living within one Earth, and mm-hmm. we need to be using those those resources here. And it and it, it might not be use something might not 
be useful for, for me at a, at a particular instant, but it will be useful f- for someone else or for something else to then turn it into a resource for me again, such as food waste, mm-hmm. which I said, like, I don't want to eat it any, anymore. It has gone, gone bad or it's the peel. But if I give it to the soil, it will turn it into compost that then can be turned into food I can eat again. And I really wanted to take that on another level and go out in, in the world under understand how different people and places view and look at the resources and what they consider to be a waste or value and why and how. Mm. So it's so it's really like I, I see the opportunity not really under the like trash pile but the trash pile itself. Like that <laughs> is the value. Right. And well, so what did you find when you went around? Where, where are some of the memorable places that you investigated how people think about waste um, around the world? Oh, I went to Germany for three months and where they actually put, there's a law that that no organic resources such as food can be put into a landfill or be thrown away as waste or burnt. Mm-hmm. So they actually compost or turn it into methane, every, everything as, as a law. And it has mm-hmm. produced so much um, business opportunities and, 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 and um, jobs and made people have a new whole industry of turning back um, what people before saw as waste into a resource mm. again. Um, and then I went to India and learned about the huge informal recycling sector there, uh, formerly called trash p- trash pickers, who see, who are building up life and sending their kids to uh, to uh, to uh, to a school by seeing val- value in things that other people throw oh throw away. And it taught me a lot of about that that everything is a resource depending on how you look at it and it's more that they're wasteful behaviors more than things mm. and then in i went to china for three months and it was a really amazing experience teaching me a lot about just scale i come from a country who are nine million people and i was living in a city with 27 million people so that really brought to to me like the scale of if we see things as waste and we're 27 million that's gonna never be be a lot of lost opportunities right right there and i think my time and after that i went to um um, japan and learned about um their recycling and waste management meant there and how they are trying to really rethink it as not waste management but as a resource management Mm. and that was brought me back here because i realized that it's us here in the western world or 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 in the so-called developed world who needs to develop the most because of the rest of the world wants to become like us so we have to really really change and not see things as waste but as resource as a resource and I want to come back and learn more about how I can um, really get practical in that um, viewpoint. So what are you doing as as a graduate student? um, You're kind of learning some of the solid waste systems that are existing now and what we're doing with so-called waste? Yes so I came back in in the fall and as a project um, as a volunteer as a tourist <laughs> and I did a waste audit or, or a discarded resource 
audit where we collected everything that the campus um, threw away during a week, all the compost, all the recycling, everything, and we audited it and saw what is it, how much is placed in the wrong bins, mm -hmm. how 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 like much, and then we um, made an exhibition of, about it. So everything was in one tent and really rethinking about like what are these things that we don't value and why don't we value uh, them and how could we put them into a process of a circular economy or like a way of living um, and then I came back now in the winter as a student and I'm working with the school to hopefully make it a zero waste school or a um, zero waste school yeah uh -huh. and that's that's my vision and right. and and the hope and that's what I'm hoping to work for, implement some some strategies of doing so. So I went to that tent. Um, yeah, you did. You finished that that project, and it struck me as there's another law of nature um, that you're probably familiar mm -hmm. with. There's no such thing as a way in nature, <laughs> and you're bringing all of the so-called waste or things that were thrown away to one place and allowing people to look at that was an eye opener. We suddenly saw that the things we had hidden away in the, in the trash bag or um, wherever were all of a sudden visible. And what do you think people's reactions were? What what did you hear from students and faculty and and staff at College of Atlantic when you had everything assembled in one place? Yeah, um, a lot of positiveness actually that like oh my gosh I did not know that that like these things are thrown away and like positive in in, in like it's positive like it's actually not gonna be it, like it could be not waste if okay. I just rethought it so it was this optimism of like if we just rethink and redesign and 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 revalue is 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 possible because I think before it was kind of a taboo of not thinking about the waste and by bringing it into the room and, and making art and useful things out of it people are more comfortable thinking about it and it's not just when I throw something away it's gone it's like oh my gosh I can keep on to to this or do I really actually need this thing right now so it's um I think it was empowering for many many of us um, to actually go through these trash bags and see <laughs> what were in in them you were using gloves when you did that. Though. Yes, we did. They did. Mm -hmm. We do have a, a phone call. I'll list our phone numbers one more time. If you'd like to share your experience, your um, insights, or your questions, give us a call at one. Um, let's see, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We do have a call from Brooklyn. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in and congratulations. You know, this is such a wonderful program, and it's so encouraging for me to hear. Uh, just having come back myself from a really short trip to Norway, where I never have been before, but I saw there a, a, a prototype of a place where there is, like, zero waste, even as far as the people of the country go. You know, the people, you know, and if you take this to, a, to its social uh, extension, uh, which is what we're working on through working with the material, with our material waste. We're also working with the, the, the social correlative to that, that there's, there's really no wasted people either. <laughs> and that every person is, is, is a resource and not, not a liability. And you can't throw people away. That's and great. I, I just was seeing this embodied in this, uh, a, a beautiful statue they have in Norway where the, the state is the huge, towering, beautiful woman, and, and the, the people 
uh, represented by a man who's much smaller, standing on a little podium next to the woman, and uh, and she's you know protecting him and encircling him like the state might do for its people if they were really one and the same organism, which is the truth of it. And you know to begin to see that even in a in a material way is maybe how we can begin to work toward that ourselves. So I'm really encouraged by the program. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much for your call this morning. one 625 9378 Yeah, I think that that's a great concept. There's no wasted people either, Jay. Yeah, and I think that's what what people are finding and, and companies and organizations are finding is looking at what, what are the strengths of people and and how can you help them, you know, be be their best on the and, and I think that if you go back to the waste issue, I mean, the opportunities here are tremendous. Uh, if you look at everything that's uh, dug up, uh, produced, uh, 99% of that is, is, used, is considered waste after six months. So only one, less than 1% of those things are still in use after six months. And Lisa's concept of bringing College of the Atlantic to zero waste may sound a little bit out there, but uh, she has some great stories from large companies and cities as well who are striving for the same thing. So this is something that is happening here and now, and the people who are on the front end of this are the ones who will be, really be capturing the opportunity. But maybe, Lisa, if you want to talk a little bit about some of the companies. Let's, let's and, take a phone call first and then yeah. come back to that. We have Lindy from Southwest Harbor. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, good morning. Uh, thank you very much. Wonderful program. I have just a question for Lisa. So oh, the guilt when I go to the recycle center is horrible, and so I'm really glad to be inspired more to recycle even further. But, for instance, what would you do? I have a fan that's broken, not working, and I'm not putting it anywhere. I'm just shoveling it around my apartment and for fear of what is what am I going to do with it? So <laughs> what would um, a zero-waste program do as a fan. And thank you so much. Appreciate That's great. Great question. And uh, put put us right on the spot. Thanks mm -hmm. for that call this morning. So yeah, that, that's a pretty typical kind of thing. Yeah. People go to their recycling center and they they feel a little bit badly about putting it, but at least they're recycling it. So mm -hmm. they feel good about that. But then there are some things that don't feel like they could go into the recycling program. Yeah. So I learned in India by an organization called Shintan about the 12 R's. Instead of going from the three, reduce, reuse, recycle, they put recycle at the bottom of the 12 R's. And um, one of them is repair or remake and rethink. And I think this is a very, very great example of where you're standing there with, with our broken laptop or our broken fan. And I think the number thing, first thing is, can we, can we repair it? Is there anyone out there who is willing and can to repair it? And if not, why, why not? And is there a way that we can come to get and fix the things that we do have and that we have a need, 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 need for. So it's become more convenient and, and a better way for the community to repair something and make a job opportunity from from that than to just toss it away and then buy something else um, that often comes from China. Well, I read in the, the newspaper that uh, our town, our shared town of Bar Harbor, is is actually rethinking their recycling center. And one of the things they want to do is to create a space for, the, for um, people to put things that are still usable, might be like this broken fan, mm -hmm. that people can then take away. 
So there's, there's an exchange going on. Some people's trash is somebody else's treasure, and we, and we don't allow for that too much. Um, used to be you could go to the dump and you could pick the dump. You, they, don't, they don't allow you to do that anymore. So yes, great, great concept. So um, Jay, you were asking Lisa another question in terms of, of this concept, I think, of, of uh, um, what do we do with all of the things that we're producing? Yeah, well, and I was, the, Lisa has shared some examples with me of just of how this is happening, not only at the scale of College of the Atlantic, but with giant multinational corporations that are striving for zero waste in large urban areas. So I don't know if you wanted to yeah. talk a little about so, that. So uh, it came out recently that, that Unilever, which is a, a giant production company for a lot of products, um, they are going, they, they have be become zero waste in their production. Hmm. So they're, they're, they're sending nothing to a landfill or to be burnt um, for, ener for ener energy. So they're actually having a closed cycle in their um, production facilities and saving a lot of $200 million on this, and so which is pretty impressive. And Unilever um, produces everything. I yes, mean, they do. It, and, and they want to go, they've gone on all their, gi the, the, their large uh, production facilities, which is very exciting, and it shows that it's possible on a personal and on a big um, level, if if you just restructure and rethink of how you how you value uh, you uh, you uh, things, and then there is like a city like San Francisco who reached their seventy five percent goal of diversion, so they are actually now recycling and composting eighty percent of the things that they discard discard of. Um, and that's pretty impressive. And where are normal communities or, or average communities? Bar Harbor thinks, I think it prides itself at something like uh, um, 60 percent or something like that, you know, um, yes. where other communities might be on that scale. Mm -hmm. Do you happen to know what, where other communities are on that scale if, if San Francisco is 80 percent? Yeah. So, so most communities are much, much lower because we don't put, we, we don't Take away the food waste from the from the waste waste stream, and that's the largest part from for many many uh, places. So if you can divert food waste, you are you are already up at 60 percent without maybe even recycling. So uh, at at home, you know, um, most a lot of food waste we can compost um, yes. at home. Um, at the municipal level. Um, Jay, that's where your butanol students came in. They were thinking about, can we figure out how to get to restaurants and, and other establishments that have a fair amount of food waste and, and use that some way? Yeah, well, and the beauty of using waste is, you know, from a business point of view, your input is zero or people are even paying you to haul it away. Right. And so you have companies who are creating compost um, and using the, the remnants from food production facilities and creating soil that, that can then be sold. So your inputs are zero, you're creating a product you can sell. And, and so that, that's a really good business model. And yeah. you know, look no farther than biofuel, um, where people are, are harvesting French fry grease to make biofuel. And now you know, the grease was at one point people were getting paid to take it away, and now it's got real value so much so that they have to lock it up to prevent people from stealing it. Right, right. I mean, so that'll, that'll be a wonderful day. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. So um, as, as you think about um, um, the average uh, business um, who might not have been kind of connected, what are the ways that you could intrigue them to begin to look at themselves and say, how could we do things differently? Sure. Well, part of the abundance cycle, we have we've gotten rid of the term waste entirely and just thinking about it as unsold production, mm. right? So part of this is the mindset shift that Lisa is talking about. But this is 
in every business, you're creating products that you want to sell. Mm -hmm. And everything that you're wasting is stuff you're producing, but you're just not selling. And when you start thinking of it as unsold production, people say, well, wait a minute, is there value there? What can we do with this? Is there a market for this? Um, might someone else use this as an input? Or could we do something like Yang Zin did and you know produce a new product that people are going to use? And there are lots of companies that are exploring this. There's one company in uh, New Zealand called Lanzatech, and they're trying to harvest the chemicals out of emissions. Hmm. And so then they can take those chemicals and resell them back into the marketplace. Hmm. Emissions from? From, from smokestacks. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because they, they're increasingly, um, smokestacks have scrubbers in them that remove those things, but they haven't necessarily found a product. Right, or, there's a, or it's seen as a liability, or you have to pay for the offsets. Uh-huh. Um, and so, again, it's, it's about not just thinking this is something we have to get rid of, but what can we do with this valuable resource that we're creating? Right, right. So as we begin to wrap up the hour, um, Lisa, are there lessons that you think um, businesses ought to be thinking about, not only in terms of waste, but this notion of sustainability? Are there things that you'd like to um, see people think about as they either go into business or they reevaluate their business? Um, I think the first step is always take a take a step back mm. and and reflect, make an audit of what you have, mm-hmm. and then be you know, like where would I like to to be and that's going to be different for whatever business you are you are um, um doing a service or a production um 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 business but to understand what you're doing right now and embrace that and then being like what are the the low hanging 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 fruit of actually making more valuable things or to reduce a cost such mm. as such as like pickup of a of of like trash is there a way that i could compost or take food and 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 sell it to like pigs or uh, or or something else and then move on from 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 there and not and to not be afraid of having a vision of i would like to have no waste and realize that it will take a while to get there but you have to be taking the first step and i think one of the there um um the one of the R's that I like the most out of them, uh, the 12, 12 R's, ones are, are reach out, is to be able to be talking with pe- pe- with each other and learning and asking. And uh, yeah, pe- there are a lot of great ideas and people doing amazing things. And we just need to learn about them. So relearn is also another R. <laughs> great. A wonderful. 12 R's. We'll have to learn more about that. Uh, Jay, what would you add to that? What, what could businesses be thinking about? Yeah, I, you know when we when we look at abundance, this this whole issue of waste that we've been talking about is one of about a dozen different mm. tactics that people are using. So we've just barely scratched the surface. Um, and if I may, one one thing I'd suggest people to go on to abundancecycle dot com if they want to see the model and how it works. Um, but there are things from the sharing economy where people are are again taking resources that are just sitting around like a spare room or a car and sharing those with people. It's another form of waste. Um, but there's a whole lot more that people could be doing to create abundance for uh, their enterprise, for their local community, and for the environment. Um, and so waste is one of the big opportunities, but there's lots more out there. So we're just barely scratching the surface. So Abundance.com? Uh, AbundanceCycle.com. AbundanceCycle.com. Well, this has been a great hour, and, and it's gone too fast. Um, but I want to thank both of you for helping us think about the abundance cycle and how businesses and communities are beginning to use that. 
We've come to that time when I want to remind listeners that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Uh, Join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each month. Um, You'll note that uh, the fourth Friday of each month is now taken up by my colleague uh, Natalie Springle, who is uh, doing a program, uh, a wonderful program called Coastal Conversations. And uh, they're looking at issues facing Maine coastal communities through a dialogue with people who live, work, and play along our coast. So tune in on the fourth Friday of each month for Coastal Conversations. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our um, guests here at uh, uh, Talk of the Towns this morning. Um, We had uh, Jay Friedlander, who is the Sharp McNally Chair of Green and Socially Responsible Business at College Atlantic, along with graduate student Lisa Bjorke. We also heard from Steve Schaefer from Black Dinah Chocolatiers out on Isla Ho. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of Downs, wishing you a good morning and reminding you to pledge by calling 1-800-643-6273. Support for WERU comes from the